Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is Fundamentals of Organizing, where we've been talking with organizers about the craft. Today, I don't have a guest, but did want to share some thoughts as we live and organize through this challenging period. This time we live in, it is so damn humbling. A world that sometimes feels full of possibility, just as often appears to be unraveling right before our eyes. As someone who feels sure organizing will play a defining role in how it all turns out, I often think about what it must be like to be a new organizer or a young organizer in this period. Letter to a young organizer, number two. If it feels like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders, it makes sense. These are heavy times and you are an organizer. Still, this weight, it's not yours, not alone. I hope you know that. Our responsibility is to build a base, develop people, win things, and contribute to something larger. That is not easy. And it's more than enough. Doing this, along with lots of others doing the same, is exactly what we need. In the introduction to the populist moment, the historian Lawrence Goodwin names a handful of qualities of impactful social movements. One that always struck me was this idea of reaching a state of collective self-confidence, where a large enough group of people believe we are, in fact, going to win. It's no secret, we don't have that feeling right now, and that's okay. We've had it before, and we will have it again. I believe we rebuild that confidence by winning and winning often. You have come of age amidst vibrant social movements, stunning shifts in our broader culture, and a live fight for the heart and soul of both major political parties. You and your generation, you're not here to win the best thing possible in the existing landscape, but to remake that landscape altogether. That is a beautiful thing. Still, I want you to know how to run that campaign to turn cultural change into wins that people can touch and feel. We chant, I believe that we will win, but the truth is, most people don't. A good campaign can change that. People need a reason to believe, and winning some shit, even if imperfect, is one antidote to cynicism. We are not responsible for the weight of the world, but we are responsible for giving more people a reason to believe. The federal landscape is tough, and possibly about to get tougher. We build collective self-confidence by moving to higher ground where we have a stronger hand. I believe we are entering a time of going local, of a return to corporate campaigns, of making demands of the heads of federal and state agencies, places where we can fight, win, and restore hope. We are in the dawn of an organizing revival. As we enter what I believe will be a period of great campaigning, I want to share some things that I've learned along the way. I hope they can be of help. Campaign on issues that are widely and deeply felt. An issue that only a handful of people care about will not build much power. An issue that everyone agrees on, but no one is passionate about, will not provide the fight needed to win. We listen for issues that are widely and deeply felt. One without the other will not get it done. There are lots of ways for us to listen to what issues meet this test. We can knock on doors, do one-on-ones, or track and test what's most resonant using any of the social media tools at our disposal. Regardless of the method, figure out what is most widely and deeply felt, and then figure out how to pay for that campaign. Always in that order. Be skeptical of foundation grants on issues in search of a base. Let the listening lead the way and the campaigns will be better for it. Learn to cut an issue. When I started organizing in southern Indiana, we had no training or books to show us the way. Still, we did some things right. We listened for problems. The lack of affordable housing topped the list. 
We had rallies, got some media, and raised awareness about housing problems. We did not have a specific demand or a clear target. And so, nothing changed. Even if the mayor or city council were tracking what we were doing, they felt no direct pressure to do anything about it. We were stuck. Around this time, I got invited to an organizing meeting in Indianapolis. There was a guy there, Mike Evans, who seemed to know this organizing thing. After I drove back home, I called him up and said we couldn't pay him, but we could cover his gas and feed him if he'd come down and teach us about organizing. It was Mike who first taught us how to cut an issue. One of the things we learned that day is that we don't organize on problems, we organize on issues. Organizing works in part because we turn big problems into specific and actionable solutions and then demand people with power agree to enact them. Problems feel overwhelming. Facing them, we often feel defeated before we have started. Examples of problems might be poverty, climate change, or racism. So we cut out a more discrete part of the problem, identify a solution, and use that as a stepping stone towards larger structural progress. Come to a meeting to talk about the problem of all the abandoned buildings in the neighborhood? This sounds familiar and tired. We've had that meeting many times. Come to a meeting about how we pressure the mayor to demolish the dilapidated abandoned buildings and turn them into community gardens? Sounds more clear and inspiring. There's a reason that Frederick Douglass's power concedes nothing without a demand is among our most enduring organizing axioms. Because we are not just putting forth broad wishes or generalizations, but clear demands to specific people with power, names, and addresses. Learn how to cut an issue, and I think you will quickly build a base, win things, and soon be ready to take on an even larger cut of the problem. We organize to get to the table. That's our job. Yes, we need to flip the table, reorganize the table, reimagine the table. But we have to be at it if we're serious about winning. Otherwise, we will not win shit. Or maybe worse, we'll have set the table for some operative to be sitting at it instead, settling for a lesser win, and taking credit all the same. And if we're not at the table, our members are not at the table, and our members are missing out on a chance to win and a chance to grow. We do not develop ourselves or others by sitting at the bar bragging of how we are too pure to be at the table. Recently, me and a couple of staff from People's Action, which I used to direct, were going through our archives. For decades, we had a national newspaper that it went out to 100,000 people in neighborhoods that had been touched by organizing. As we looked through past issues, one team member said, You know, I expected more photos to be of direct action, but so many are of a bunch of neighborhood leaders sitting and meeting with a few guys in suits. It's true. That's because we organize to win things, and that means being at the table. The table is complicated. We often leave the table and go back to the streets, but we are always trying to get there. Because at the table, we not only win, but people develop. They get tougher. They learn lessons that will be essential as we move into demands that are more transformative and targets more powerful. Power analysis first, strategy second. Your strategy is never better than your power analysis. When you have a good power analysis, it's hard to win. Without one, it's not even a thing. When doing a power analysis of a decision maker, we want to know these things. What do they have power over? Who has power over them? What do they most want? And what do they most not want? Let's say the person you need to move is the mayor. You first want to understand what they have power over. This includes what decisions, what bodies, what individuals, especially as it relates to your demand. You also want to know who has power over the mayor. When you get stuck and can't move them, these secondary targets could, if properly motivated, push your target to say yes to your demands. 
Also, these people with power over your target may have a vested interest in blocking your demands. You want to know all of this. You want to know what motivates the target. People in power often want one thing, more power. Their aspiration might be re-election, a governing majority, higher quarterly earnings. We also want to know what decision makers most don't want. Do they most want to avoid bad press, a falling out with a specific constituency, or the slowing of a merger they are trying to finalize? If they are someone you are not able to align with, and are in fact an adversary, you need to be seen as an organization that can block what they want or bring closer what they don't. If you are able to do either and they recognize that, their motivation to negotiate increases, as does your chance of winning. This can sound combative. It often is. But it doesn't have to be. If the decision maker you seek to move is willing to come to the table, you will still want to know all these things, but you will be more likely to deliver exactly what it is they want and then land a win. That might be votes, good press, or a needed constituency. Regardless, develop your power analysis, then your strategy, then your tactics. The action is in the reaction. We do actions to spur a reaction. That can be one we intend or some random ass shit. When devising tactics, we organizers, you know, we have a tendency to focus on our action. What we should be most concerned with is the reaction to our action. The reaction we seek could be for the target to agree to a meeting, a media hit that strengthens our hand, or the decision maker overreacting and weakening theirs. Our tactics are just more effective when we are clear on the reaction we want. Look, we've all been in situations where we just don't know what to do next, so we come up with something to keep the campaign in motion. I get it, and I've done my share of this, but if you can step back and get clear on the reaction you want, you will find the answer and you will develop more strategic actions. Sometimes the reaction we seek, it might be within ourselves. In 2005, around 800 National People's Action members did an action on Dan Stein, the CEO of FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, an anti-immigrant group. They were leading the charge against the DREAM Act, which would have provided a pathway to citizenship for undocumented youth. We didn't think we were going to win anything from Dan Stein. We also knew we had not built the multiracial, multi-immigration status solidarity needed for the long fight ahead. So the reaction we most wanted was for our immigrant members to experience a new sense of power and to build multiracial solidarity. So we packed 20 school buses, went to the fair offices, got past security, and took over the organization's boardroom. There, a multiracial leadership team supported undocumented youth who shared testimony in a very tense encounter with one of the nation's most prominent anti-immigrant leaders. One undocumented teen from Kansas told her story of being brought to the U.S. by her parents as a toddler and how this was the only country she knew. Still, she could not receive in-state tuition and lived in constant fear of being deported. Stein then said there was a simple solution to her problem. Go back to Mexico. The leadership team erupted, and the room got hot. I mean, almost too hot. Me and Soma Arias, who now directs People's Action, looked at each other and thought, we gotta get out of here. But that moment when Dan Stein was such a shit to this young woman awakened for native-born members of the organization the challenges faced by undocumented youth and the cold-heartedness of the anti-immigrant movement. We then gave Stein a horse's-ass award and headed back to the buses. But as we gathered outside, it felt as if our immigrant members were all but walking on air. They had just gone face-to-face with a man hell-bent on removing them from the country, and for a moment, they had the power and they were not alone. When we win, tell the story. Your organization's members have little time 
and more choices than ever of what to do with it. You need them to decide the campaign is something to prioritize. One way we do that is by telling the story, and ours needs to become binge-worthy. People love a story, and a strong campaign has all the elements of a good one. We have a protagonist, that's us, an antagonist, the bad guy. We have the initial action, that is the shitty stuff the bad guy did to start the whole thing. We then have conflict, the people fighting back. And if all goes well, we have the resolution we want. Having all the elements of a good story, it doesn't mean much if we're not telling it. Telling the story is so important, especially when we win. People are hunting for hope, and every win is a chance to meet that need. I first learned to organize in a time when we had flyers, printed newsletters, and word of mouth as a means of telling our story. So we worked with what we had. In the lead-up to a meeting or action, we had a theory. The people needed to hear about the event at least five times. Flyers, a door knock, signs in the neighborhood, a phone call, maybe another door knock. If you didn't come to the action, it was not for lack of hearing about it. The same goes for when we won. Following a victory, big or small, we'd be up the next day making flyers, and that afternoon, walking the neighborhood with members to spread the word. Don't be precious about it. It's easy to overthink things. Hugh Espy, longtime organizer with Iowa CCI, often sends out two-sentence personalized emails sharing news from a recent win. These are down and dirty, but they get the job done. In fact, their brevity is part of what works. As we launch new campaigns from higher ground, let's tell the story of the fight and the wins. The right is on the attack. They are coming hard and they will come harder. These are dark times and the opposition thrives on cynicism, is counting on defeatism. We counter that not by obsessively scouring the web for bad news, throwing Hail Marys, or being too pure to be in the fight. We counter by listening, organizing, and rebuilding from the ground up. I just did 40 one-on-ones with working class folks in the Midwest, and I met people who were ready to fight, who wanted to win, and who did not have their head in the clouds or in the sand because they felt there was too much at stake for either. You are not a passive observer. You are an organizer. An organizer in one of the most consequential periods in our history. Carve out a piece of the work. Build campaigns around that and help more people get out of their heads and into the street. You are here to stir the pot, to take the crisis to those who created it to transform hearts and minds on the way to transforming how the whole thing works. An organizing revival requires campaigns. If we launch a period of great campaigns that start with listening, teach people how to cut an issue, do a good power analysis, and design actions to spur the reactions we want and need, I like our chances. I'm writing about the fundamentals of organizing at georgegale.substack.com. Subscribe now at georgegale.substack.com. This podcast was produced by Fundamentals of Organizing and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Stacey Wood. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. See you next time.